0: Welcome to the podcast of the week by the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions, Europe 1100-1800. Enjoy hearing how emotions make history. James Smith is a visiting research fellow at the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute at Trinity College Dublin. His research focuses on intellectual history, medieval abstractions and visualisation schemata, environmental humanities and water history. His first monograph, Water and in Medieval Intellectual Culture, Case Studies from 12th Century Monasticism, was published by Brepholz in 2017. James is the editor of The Passenger, Medieval Texts and Transits, and co-editor of a themed collection for the Open Library of the Humanities on new approaches to medieval water studies. He's currently shaping a digital environmental humanities project titled Deep Mapping and Spiritual Waterscape of Ireland's Lakes. This paper, Toxic Emotions, Riparian Personification and Pollution, Past, Present and Future, was delivered at a conference on the future of emotions, conversations without borders, at the University of Western Australia in June 2018.
1: I'll just start off by explaining the context for this talk. So essentially what I'm doing is I'm moving into a kind of think piece on this topic and what I'm trying to do is think my way through the sort of the context of um, personification and pollution and its sort of future in emotions history and and past and present and future you know implications of the emotions um, and how we can sort of deal with some of the complexes or clusters of emotions surrounding things like environmental degradation uh, the sort of neoliberal uh, removal of agency from the landscape and the sort of appropriation of landscape and some of the things that can be done to rehabilitate stories and senses of place. And it's very appropriate that we're, you know, here in, uh, on the side of the Swan River and uh, we can acknowledge the traditional beliefs of the Noongar people and their uh, understanding of place and of the river and its agency and to see our way through to sort of new stories and new understandings of that agency. So, this is a story that in the Western tradition is a history of agency from the classical era. So you may be familiar, this is Father Tiber or Tiberinus, the uh, <coughs> patron, the, the deity of the River Tiber in Italy. And this is the Prince Aeneas from the Aeneid, um, asleep on the banks of the River Tiber. And he has a vision where Father Tiber comes to him and says, um, well, firstly, you've found your new home. and..." Uh, this will be, you know, the, the place that, that Rome is founded, your, your, your time as a sort of refugee is over, but also that you will find allies and you will have a story here. So there's this, um, and he says, oh, Lord of Hesperian waters, you know, thank you for your gift, and, um, and they, they have this kind of interaction, but it shows the sort of... But that the Romans had a, quite a sophisticated understanding of agency and interplay and interactions where, although they did believe in the agency and power of um, natural entities and of their sort of personification, the prosa the sort of personification allegory. They also understood it as a kind of flexible political concept with sort of negotiation. But um, we then see that this has a reception history and it corresponds with a history in the change in the relationship with landscape and place but also the sort of subsequent degradation of landscape by the Industrial Revolution and the changes in sort of land management practices over time. So I'm sure you'll all be familiar with these images from Punch from the mid-19th century, from surrounding the context of the the cholera outbreak in London and the Great Stink. And um, we still see a a river god here, Father Thames, being given his card by um, Faraday as a solution, you know, for the pollution of the river. And we see um, Father Thames inducing his, introducing his offspring to the fair city of London. So we've got a double bill of personification allegory here of, um, of the, you know a woman representing London, Father Thames and his disease. Was it uh, diphtheria, uh, cholera and scrofula, his offspring and their gift to the city of London? So we see, I mean, Punch is quite famous for using classical motifs and allegories as a kind of sort of vaguely ironic political message in the 19th century, but we can see that the imagery of personification and agency is still there, but it's been stripped of its actual sort of... It, it's become a sort of device for... And you still see even Guardian cartoonists using personification allegory now, but it's taken on a different meaning and it's, it's not a, a held belief, it's a sort of a visual... It's a reception of personification, but in a different form. So when we see the history of rivers especially being polluted, degraded, taken not as a whole but as a series of cubic litres and essentially a groove in the ground that can be extracted, redirected and manipulated with with impunity um, as as a space rather than a place, when we see that happening, we also see that although there are many cultures today that still hold these beliefs and that need to be rehabilitate it, there's also a sort of faded echo of a European history of personification as well, and we need to take that into account when we start to tell new stories about, and and overcome some of what I've called the toxic emotions surrounding the pollution and degradation of rivers. So, and we'll understand, we see now the advent of the microbe and the kind of moral panic about what's in the water suddenly starts to take uh, front and centre over the idea of the river as a sort of person it, people start to look within the water and see the, the sort of the germs and the the disease but um, but even then there's these little animist kind of beasties that are like the representations of the microbes so you know the the personification or the sort of uh creation of like agency within uh things it continues but it's it's changed into something else entirely so this is an interesting passage from Serenella Jovino, an ecocritic, where she's talking about the Po Valley in Italy, which had been, become a very polluted landscape. And she talks about it as a, a necro-region rather than a bioregion. It's become dead and it's become, it's become spaced rather than placed, that environing has sort of dissipated or failed. And she says that even in this, there are still stories there to be told that the landscape of values and stories that intersect with the landscape of people and places are still there. That the Values and stories are people and places. There are people and places that have declined over time. They, um, they're a vision of the past, but they're still there and they have a potential to come alive again, to extend to the present and to create a transformation in the perspective of a landscape so that although it's scientifically or physically can be rehabilitated or cleaned or developed um, into something more equitable and more sort of permanent, more sustainable there's also a narrative rehabilitation that can take place, an emotional rehabilitation. And she says in, in the same context that in a landscape of suburban countryside in the Po Valley Made of houses, industrial sites, electric power plants, decommissioned nuclear reactors. The stories and wisdom of places seem on the verge of extinction, and I think that's something we can recognise in many cases of a place that was storied and imbued with person, with agency, with, with a, um, a personhood, a sort of a narrative, a very strong sort of sense of continuity, identity being dissipated and turned into raw, brute, inert sort of material, as Jane Bennett talks about it in the case of Vibrant Materialism. And it's worn out and alienated and dead. But how did this happen? So Veronica Strang has created a very good sort of understanding of the complexes of what bring this kind of uh, force. She talks about water beings as a sort of culturally uh, ubiquitous but very culturally specific manifestations of like agency within water. So something like... You know, Father Tiber is a water being. The Woggle is a water being. There's many, many different tra- traditions of water being. But the thing that negates the water being and that creates a, is the, the, the contemporary configuration. You'll notice that the circle for humankind is very large. Um, it, in her other diagrams that talk about older models, the circles are the same size. But the outsized hierarchical, socio-political class Structures of um, of a kind of industrialized civilization, they displace other species and material things, elite land and resource ownership and management, monotheism, assertive notions that we heard about dominion over nature the other day, yesterday I believe, um, and the idea that um, species becoming uh, domesticated and exploited. Uh, anthropogenically induced extinctions, sophisticated technologies of environmental control, and of course, prior to that, there was you know a more there were other more egalitarian notions of of being and of uh, society. There were less anthropogenic you know problems. So there's a different water beings thrive in an environment that is not stratified and instrumentalized, and that in order to encourage a new sort of agency and personification, there, there needs to be a change and a reversal of some of these uh, trends. Now, i talk about a bit about, so we've talked so far about stories and narrative, but there's also a corresponding legal precedent, a change in jurisprudence that is taking place now. That in certain legislations and constitutions, the natural objects and nature are being given rights under law in the same way that a, a corporation has historically being considered a legal person, that I've used this image here from Christopher Stone's argument, which started in the 70s, and was treated as a bit of a wacky sort of uh, legal experiment, thought experiment, of like, well, if a corporation can be a person, can't an environment be a legal, agential person? And it's starting to happen now in a series of decisions. So the famous one there you'll see is the Huangganri River in... New Zealand where the Huanganwi iwi, the Maori group that are the custodians of that river, have uh, won a recognition of the river as a legal person. The river Ganges was, um, there was a decision that it should be considered a legal person. But then there was a reversal within the, by the, the Supreme Court that sort of undid some of that. But as you'll see, the success in the change in the law is not always accompanied on the ground by an actual change in the material circumstances of the river. In the case of the Vilcabamba in Ecuador, there was actually a successful case brought on behalf of the river against the municipal council of um, the, I think it's in Loya, like the province, where they were building a new highway, a very important national infrastructure project, but they were dumping all of the... All the rocks and all the rubble and all the building products just off the side of this slope straight into the Vilcabamba they clogged it up but then they won a case saying that there had to be a sort of precautionary principle at work and that the construction company had to prove that they weren't causing um damage to the river rather than just you know it being assumed that you know as long as it was a necessary and worthy nation building project then the environmental damage was sort of par for the course so there are starting to be not just sort of pronouncements in legislation, but actionable cases in, you know, personification. And you can see some of that with things like the personification of primates and things like that, of the rights of... The, in, in the area of animal rights, there are other sort of precedents starting to come out. But the problem is that they don't always match up to the reality of what's being done to these, these natural uh, entities, in, in the case I'm talking about rivers. So... And you're starting to see a lot of uh, media coverage. So, rivers are now legally people, but that's just the start. When a river is a person from Ecuador to New Zealand, nature gets its day in court. It's only natural to push to give rivers, mountains and forests legal rights. So, it's become like an increasingly um, intellectually sort of intriguing idea to a lot of people. But then, we also see in the case of the Ganges and the Yumuna, the um, recognition that if you make something that has been instrumentalised back into a legal person, and it is environmentally degraded, you've suddenly got a big custodianship moral problem because you've just turned something from being a sort of uh, a pollution problem into a abuse of rights and a you know a, a very serious violation of of sovereignty and an agency and of a place, and that. Um, if the Ganges were a legal person, it would be a murdered legal person because it has been so badly polluted um, and so badly diverted. Um, and that that once you reintroduce the legal possibility of, a, of personhood, uh, non-human personhood, without any kind of corresponding action, you are introducing a whole complex of emotions and of uh, implica- moral implications that some of these policy makers may not have been prepared to consider at the time. So I wanted to talk a bit about some of the environmental emotions that are considered to sort of revolve around um, these decisions. So if we start to reconstruct a story of place and to be more inclusive and to be more uh, open to understanding different types of knowledges of place, and if we start to make legal decisions that enshrine that, then... That creates a complex of whole of emotional sort of fierce problems, I would call them. So you know, there's four different clusters of emotions surrounding environmental behaviour. So emotional burdens and worries. So the idea of that that we are tasked with a problem in the Anthropocene that may be too big to deal with. That that dread, that worry, that anxiety. That um, and there's also um, a corresponding emotion that I was talking to Ali about before. Um, about eco-phobia, that the idea that if one acknowledges that one has created an ecosystem that is out of control and that you don't understand the way that one behaviour relates to another behaviour and the effects of that on you and on your, your society, then it can create a resentment and fear and distrust of the environment, um, a disjoint, um, and emotions associated with environmentally relevant behaviour. So, what, like i said, what do you do? You know, these sort of... Are you going to be, become an activist? Are you going? What what is your sort of act? Your field of activity? As Jeff was Jeff Malpos was talking about, are you going to think locally to think globally, or are you going to act locally to act globally, or what are you what are you actually going to do? But then perhaps a, a very Che relevant uh, register is affective connections to nature. So you know we've heard about biophilia and green space and sort of positive dimensions. Then there's also As we had climate anxieties and uh, feelings of uh, disappointment or trauma or emotional anguish over the degradation of a a, a, a landscape that has a a strong emotional dimension and meaningful you know bond and moral emotions so relating to what kind of behaviors should be promoted or discouraged but then there's also the old sort of uh socio-ecological dilemma you know the um, like, like the thing with sustainability about meeting the needs of the future with, um, by not, uh, you know, was it um, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, but also interest conflicts between short term individual and long term societal interests. And, of course, in a neoliberal world, that's a very difficult uh, thing to do because we're all being to Say, you are responsible individually for your environmental behaviour. It is you that must act. It is you that must you know, have an opinion and have a belief. But then it's also a problem when it comes to... If you're dealing with a regime that treats everything as potentially commodifiable or potentially having an economic value then you are dealing with a thing where resolving a socio-ecological dilemma is extremely problematic. And of course, then, if you reintroduce agency and personhood into the mix, and if you start listening to the stories of place and stories of agency that are within the sort of remit of a place, then that then introduces a whole new level of emotional complexity. And what do you do then? So I've been thinking a little bit about you know, what are some of the sort of registers of action that can, you know, this, this is just a sort of speculative thing, but there are different sort of origins of, you know, theory that I think are useful. So expanding the franchise, the demos, democracy is the demos. I mean, it's not a static concept, the idea of who is a rights-bearing individual. Democracy was for... Uh, you know, Greek male citizens, it it expands, it has to expand, it has to evolve and grow. It needs to become more capacious, it needs to become more effective and more inclusive. And um, uh, Christopher Stone, who I showed before, talks about the discourse on the unthinkable, that we have to have difficult conversations about franchises and who is part of a franchise, and we have to continue to push, to expand and include the franchise to to create an understanding of democracy that is actually working for us. Um, we have to interrogate the emotionality of places. So, Weich like, like von Mosner, that book is, um, is called Effective Eco-Criticism, um, and that, that just came out. There's a new one coming out like later this year. That's if, uh, So that's, uh, sorry, Effective Eco-Criticism and Effective Ecologies, A-F-F, Affective, um, that there's this... Debate now coming about how do we actually understand the neurobiology, the emotionality of places we need to understand that better. We need to listen to stories of place and emotion, and I think that of course, in the case of rivers of emotion, we saw a very the Che project we saw a very good example of a collaborative process to understand the swan from a variety of um, perspectives, including first peoples, but also you know. Uh, types of stories about place and emotion that might not have been considered uh, or understood to be a possible part of the story. We need to reimagine community, that's Veronica Strang's term. You need to imagine the human and the non-human as part of a new new sort of unit um, for understanding um, environment to tell stories new stories and old stories and combinations of new and old stories that rehabilitate turn space back into place make new places but also rehabilitate very old places in the sense of like culturally meaningful spaces, places and unforget I like this the idea of anamnesis unforgetting we need to unforget the things that we have forgotten with time And that is the end for me. So I am going to wrap up and I will leave that with you because it is very much an open-ended investigation for me. So thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast by the ARC Centre for the History of Emotions, please go to our website, www.historyofemotions.org.au.